This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Sandra Bass. I'm the Associate Dean of Students and Director of the Public Service Center at UC Berkeley. And welcome to the latest offering of the Ocher Lifelong Learning Institute series on America's unfinished work with Professor Emeritus Charles Henry. Professor Henry will be talking about the case for reparations and the current movement for providing reparations to the descendants of former US slaves. As an African-American descendant of slaves myself, um, this talk is particularly close to my heart for a couple of reasons. In all honesty, I've often doubted that we as a country would get to the point where reparations for African-Americans would be part of our mainstream conversation. In fact, Professor Henry mentions in his book that a somewhat flippant remark from the, uh, about the futility of pursuing rep reparations from a prominent African-American political insider was one of the reasons he wrote his book. And yet in the last couple of years, we've seen an upsurge of not just interest, but actual actions towards reparations. Several universities have acknowledged how slavery was central to their development as institutions. Georgetown students recently voted to assess student fees to provide reparations to the descendants of the over 200 slaves that were sold to keep that university afloat during a financial crisis. And just in the last few weeks, Governor Newsom signed a bill that would open the door for providing reparations for, to African-American descendants of slaves in California. What has changed? Why now? And what are the possibilities of success in our current political moment? I'm also thrilled to be here because Professor Henry has been a mentor of mine since I was a graduate student at Cal. And what I remember in meeting him for the first time was his intellectual generosity, warmth, and encouragement. And I'll tell you, as an African-American woman in graduate school in the 90s, in a discipline that has struggled with diversity and inclusion, having such a thoughtful and supportive ally was the difference between finishing my program and choosing to walk away. Rarely do we get opportunities to publicly acknowledge those who have guided us along the way. And so I wanted to um, take this opportunity to offer Professor Henry my gratitude for his support, not only to me, but to generations of students at Cal during his long tenure in the Department of African-American Studies. Um, and so with that, I'll share a little bit about Professor Henry. We'll turn it over to him for his talk. And then what we'd like you to do is to put your questions in the chat. We'll have time for Q&A at the end. I'll be pulling those questions out and sharing them with Professor Henry. So Charles Henry is Professor Emeritus of African-American Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. He received his doctorate in political science from the University of Chicago and joined Berkeley in 1981. He is the former president of the National Council for Black Studies and the author or editor of eight books and more than 80 articles and reviews on black politics, public policy, and human rights. Professor Henry was chair of the board of directors of Amnesty International USA um, and is a former NEH postdoctoral fellow and American Political Science Association congressional fellow. 
1994, President Clinton appointed him to the National Council on the Humanities for a six-year term. He also served as an office director in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the U.S. Department of State during the Clinton administration. Professor Henry is a distinguished Fulbright, or was a distinguished Fulbright Chair in American History and Politics at the University of Bologna in Italy, um, and also was one of the first two Fulbright Tocqueville Distinguished Chairs in France, teaching at the University of Tours, I hope I pronounced that correctly. And Chancellor Bergino also presented Professor Henry with the Chancellor's Awards for Advancing Institutional Excellence in April 2000. And so with that, I would like to turn it over to Professor Charles Henry. Well, thank you, Sandra, for that very generous uh, introduction. And um, thank all of you who uh, have managed to join us today for the discussion of uh, what has historically been a very controversial uh, topic. Um, I, uh, back in the Jurassic period, which was the 1970s, uh, at least at this reading, uh, I co-authored an article called Imagining uh, Future in America, or uh, the the, the, the subtitle was No Black Utopias. And um, the, the article was prompted by a book that was published uh, in 1975 called Ecotopia by Ernest Kallenbach. And some of you uh, watching might be old enough to have remembered that book or, or even read that book. Uh, and I was struck at the time by the, the fact that this was a utopian work that took many of the sort of characteristics or tropes of the counterculture of the 60s and turned that into a future vision where we had a society in which Oregon and Washington and Northern California had seceded from the Union and established uh, essentially ecotopia. Uh, the, 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 the culture was biologically based rather than physics. It was... Uh, 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 gender free. Uh, a woman was the president of Ecotopia. Uh, power was decentralized, and people sort of admired uh, Native Americans in their relationship to nature and culture. Uh, and so we seemed to have solved lots of the problems that uh, affected us during that period, including uh, uh, climate change, gender inequality, etc. There was one exception to that. There were enclaves of blacks living in city states. Uh, and they were actually, one proposal that was being considered was a sort of separate city state around Salinas and the Monterey Bay for blacks. And it struck me that in this vision of utopia in the future, we had yet to solve the problem of seeing blacks as an integrated and equal whole of the rest of society. And my co-author and I looked at a number of classical works from Thomas Moore to uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne to, to uh, uh, Edward Bellamy and found that even though many of them were written in times of great racial turmoil, race was not even discussed. Uh, it was assumed to be taken care of or other things would solve that problem. And uh, the, the fact that there's an absence of black equality in utopia tells us something about uh, our visions of the future uh, uh, that have emerged from our past histories. 
Um, and that's why I've sort of uh, want to talk about reparations briefly as kind of, uh, of cycles. But, you know, to, to start, we could talk about the fact that no mainstream white political leader has given us a vision of an integrated future in which blacks and whites live together in equality. Uh, Martin Luther King said that blacks and whites had different definitions of integration. And for whites, it simply meant desegregation, uh, the absence of harm. It didn't include a sort of positive vision of a multicultural, equal and just society of people living together. And certainly if you look at our history, uh, if we look at mainstream leaders, if we look at our eight, eight of our uh, uh, presidents before the Civil War were slave owners. And uh, even Lincoln uh, during the Civil War was actively exploring the possibility of a colonization for, for black Americans at some place outside the United States, whether it be the Caribbean or Africa or Latin America. Uh, and was actually at one point told it would be physically impossible to relocate 4 million slaves. There simply wasn't the transportation available, even if you could find uh, the space. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've had two or three books on presidents' racial views from that period on up to the current period, which show that uh, uh, up through Reagan, I haven't seen any in the last decade or so, went up through Reagan, uh, they had all had problems, um, which may help explain why then reparations has been such a controversial uh, issue uh, in our history. Uh, one could, uh, a kind of shorthand definition for reparations would be a process that includes acknowledgement, redress, and closure. And um, I think uh, one of the ways I've tried to sort of, in this very brief time, encompass a, a, a long history of efforts in this regard is the first slide that we have up here, reparation cycles. And so let me briefly talk about this. I want to try to talk for maybe 30 or 35 minutes right now, uh, and then leave you time to ask some questions and for me to try to answer them. So obviously, I'm going to cut out a lot that um, uh, I would normally want to talk about if this were a, a full length course or a, you know, a, a long lecture. But um, I sort of see this in, in, in cycles that sort of are inter, uh, you know, covered generations and reparations doesn't mean the same thing or isn't this, the thing emphasized in certain periods as in other periods. In the most immediate post-Civil War period, it's land. It's land that African-Americans want. Um, um, Frederick Douglass and later Ida B. Wells were famous for, for saying that, you know, uh, the United States has done less for its freed slaves than Russia did in freeing its serfs uh, prior uh, in, in, in the early 19th century. Uh, Russian serfs got three acres of land and farm implements to work that land, and four million blacks were cast out with nothing, with, 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 with no way uh, to make a living at all. Um, and probably the most famous land claim, uh, although there are other presentations from Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens and others, but uh, people remember 40 acres and a mule. 
And indeed, that was in Stephen's initial proposal to the House of Representatives. Uh, and it's what uh, Sherman instituted in his f famous field order uh, 15 after meeting with uh, recently freed blacks in um, uh, Savannah, Georgia, along with Secretary of State uh, of War Stanton, uh, and asked what they want. They said that they, they wanted land. They wanted to be able to work independently and make a living. Um, and consequently, we get the figure of 40 acres. It was suggested that each of the 4 million slaves should be entitled to, to 10 acres of con confiscated or abandoned Confederate land. Uh, and that the many mules that had been uh, working in the Civil War uh, be leased out or loaned to those to help uh, to, to the new freedmen uh, to help them work this land. Um, so a family of four then would be entitled to 40 acres and a mule. Uh, colonization was still an option for some. Uh, some Blacks uh, did go uh, to Liberia and other places, but the vast majority wanted to make a living in the areas in, that they knew best uh, through the methods they knew best, uh, uh, which was farming. Uh, obviously, it had been uh, against the law for most of them to be taught to be uh, read and write, so farming was was the, the mode of making a living. Um, Fast forward quickly to the turn of the century. Um, the United States had provided um, pensions for uh, Civil War veterans, actually on very generous terms. For example, uh, if you were a woman, you could have married a Civil War veteran 25 years after uh, he mustered out of the military and received a part of his uh, uh, pension. Uh, as a widow, if he died, uh, there was serious talk of giving Confederate Army uh, veterans pensions. And so, uh, ex-slaves, there are about 1.9 million at the turn of the century, ex-slaves who are getting old, uh, who are having medical issues, as many seniors do, uh, were wondering, well, where's our pension? Uh, we, we have... Uh, the same problems that the veterans do in terms of age. Incidentally, there were uh, Black Union Army veterans. They found it more difficult to get these pensions in part because they required a birth certificate and many Blacks didn't have birth certificates um, in um, 1860 when they mustered in. Um, there were some, but between the period of uh, roughly 1890-95 and 1915, there were roughly 15 pension associations involving some 5 million Blacks. If you want, it's the first sort of large mass um, organization of Blacks. Uh, petitioning Congress uh, for uh, some sort of pensions and, and medical care, etc. The, the most famous of uh, these pension associations was uh, co-led by a black woman, Callie, Hass, uh, Callie House, along with Reverend Isa uh, uh, Dickerson. Um, and I'm, I want to mention her. I can't, don't have time to talk uh, extensively about her, but I want to mention her and Queen Mother Moore as two black women, uh, essential uh, leaders in this reparation struggle uh, from 
the turn of the century up through the 60s, Queen Mother Audrey Moore is actually the link between these early efforts and contemporary efforts or efforts within in my lifetime. Uh, when uh, the pension associations closed down uh, as World War I uh, came along and they were not successful, um, and actually Cali House was uh, harassed by the federal government and, and jailed. Um, they uh, went into Marcus Garvey's. Many of them went into Marcus Garvey's organization. Uh, one of the people that grew up in the Marcus Garvey organization was a woman called uh, Audley Moore. Uh, and uh, she would later uh, develop uh, one of the early, uh, well, one of the mid 20th century black reparations groups that would take uh, the claim for reparations to the UN, among others, in 1950. So she's a kind of link between this generation of Callie House and Reverend Dickerson and uh, the people uh, that we'll talk about in, in the 1960s, in the mid-20th century. Um, so um, uh, after the failure of these pension plans, um, uh, we could turn to kind of the 1960s as the next cycle of reparations uh, demands. Um, and you have uh, one of the things that's kind of unique about this cycle is we have a demand on private uh, individuals, corporations, associations, as well as a demand on the government itself. Um, the public demands uh, come from uh, black nationalists, uh, we have the black Muslims, which become popular, uh, and, and the black Muslims incidentally have connections to the Garvey organization as well through Elijah Muhammad, who had been, uh, 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 associated with the Garvey movement, but they become popular with Malcolm X becoming, uh, the lead minister. And of course they have a 10 point program. Uh, a major plank of that program, uh, asks for land in the South that will be developed as a black nation in the South. The Black Panther Party, uh, which uh, uh, adopts a 10-point program also, uh, in some ways mirroring what the black Muslims said, but in a secular way, and in what they consider a more progressive way in that it's, it's not calling for uh, separate land from whites, but it's calling for land, housing, jobs, food, but land is a, a, a part of the Panther demands. So you have on the one hand, uh, the demands of uh, black nationalist organizations. You also have demands from civil rights leaders. Um, you know, after the success of, of pushing for civil and political rights in the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, um, the Urban League puts forth a Marshall Plan for the Negro, saying we have to be concerned about economics uh, as, as well. As Ella Baker said, well, it's the use of being able to sit at a lunch counter if you don't have the money to buy a hamburger. And so um, uh, the Urban League is saying, you know, we could at least do as much for African-Americans as we did uh, for those that were uh, displaced by World War II. So let's have a Marshall Plan for the Negro. Uh, Martin Luther King picks that up and expands it and asks for an economic bill of rights for the disadvantaged. And we can go right on through that economic uh, 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 rights argument uh, with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, through the early 70s uh, call, calls for full employment. 
um, for Americans. So these can be seen as uh, as type of economic uh, uh, reparations. And then uh, finally, in 1969, James Foreman, the former leader of CORE, uh, puts forth what he calls a black manifesto asking for $500 million from America's churches, saying churches have been the most segregated institutions in the United States, and uh, uh, they need to uh, live up to their moral and ethical uh, preachings by um, devoting some of their assets to African-Americans. Uh, I believe uh, uh, of the 500 uh, million, uh, 5 million are actually, uh, pay- er, yeah, 5 million are actually paid uh, to the churches, to uh, various organizations during that period. Uh, and then um, we get to the contemporary period, and uh, I'm going to have to start moving faster <laughs> as usual. Um, uh, I, I, I kind of date the contemporary period from 1989. There are things going on all throughout these periods, but they're kind of signal events, like the end of the Civil War, like the development of pension movement, like the Civil Rights Movement. And I think we can kind of con- date the contemporary period from 1989 for one particular reason. In 1988, uh, Japanese Americans received an apology and reparations for the internment of Japanese Americans uh, in in the United States. Uh, This legislation was passed and signed by Ronald Reagan and and, and benefited about 120,000 Japanese Americans. Uh, A number of people who had been working on reparations and a number of people who weren't uh, working on reparations say, aha, Uh, if uh, the government can provide reparations for Japanese Americans, it needs to seriously look at reparations for African Americans. And consequently, um, uh, Representative John Conyers of Detroit introduces H.R. 40, uh, a bill to uh, uh, create a study commission uh, uh, that would issue recommendations in terms of African American reparations. Uh, This was modeled after the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which was the Japanese-American bill, which also called for a study commission uh, that issued recommendations that were then taken up and and, and passed. Um, Now, there were things happening before this, and COBRA, one of the leading sort of uh, contemporary organizations for reparations, was formed in 1987, et cetera. But we see a whole host of things coming after the Conyers bill. Uh, is introduced, which was, as I said, inspired by the Civil Liberties uh, Act of 88. Uh, One of those uh, involved uh, survivors of Rosewood, uh, and when Rosewood was successful, um, um, uh, people in Tulsa uh, started organizing, uh, etc. So there's a kind of domino effect flowing from the Civil Liberties Act of, of 1988. Uh, and uh, we have action on the local level as well. So let me move then uh, to a comparison of Rosewood and Tulsa, because what um, I find interesting, particularly from the the political standpoint, is looking at movements that are successful versus those that are not successful, and what are the factors that contribute to that success or the failure. And these are two of the most prominent sort of cases. Uh, There's been a popular Hollywood movie made about uh, Rosewood. Um, 
the there uh, and uh, Tulsa has recently, uh, in the last few years, uh, become a better and better known case. I, I saw a piece, uh, a brief snippet, in the San Francisco Chronicle yesterday, just yesterday on Tulsa, uh, saying they had found ten uh, uh, bodies in an unmarked grave in a cemetery in Tulsa that they think were. Uh, people who had been killed uh, during the Tulsa massacre of uh, 1921, and and uh, th those bodies had not been counted in that. So even today, uh, we're finding uh, uh, the consequences of Tulsa. So let me briefly talk about those cases. Um, the first thing to note is that both Rosewood and Tulsa um, uh, are cases in which legal redress was tried and failed, uh, and it was a legislative strategy that was successful. And the reason that legal cases have had problems historically in the United States in terms of winning reparations are three major, I think. Uh, one is sovereign immunity, and that is it's difficult to sue public entities. It's difficult to sue the police department. It's difficult to sue the fire department. It's difficult to sue, sue emergency workers. Uh, there's some very good reasons for immunity. Uh, you know, if you're a paramedic and try to save someone's life and you're not able to do that, you don't want to be sued for, the, for that failure. Uh, this has obviously become a more of an obstacle in recent years around police brutality issues and uh, the immunity uh, that it's been called qualified immunity that police officers have. But in general, it's very difficult to sue uh, a city or a state. Uh, and in some cases, you can be given permission uh, to sue. Um, but it's uh, so, so that's an obstacle uh, that we see repeatedly. Uh, standing is an obstacle. And what we mean by standing is the court will say, have you been harmed? If you're bringing the case, have you been harmed by this action? If you can't prove that you've been harmed, that your ancestors have been harmed is one thing, that people you know have been harmed, but if you haven't been harmed, it's difficult for you to bring that case. Uh, and the third is the statute of limitations, uh, which uh, in many cases, uh, if your property had been stolen or destroyed, the statute of limitations in the case of Tulsa and, and, and Rosewood had passed. And so it's difficult for you to bring legal action. So we find that the legislative route uh, in terms of both the local and state level has been uh, more favorable than the legal route. Uh, in most cases. And uh, I look at Rosewood and Tulsa in my work because there are so many similarities, uh, then it becomes striking that the outcomes were different. Uh, and the similarities include, one, the time that they occurred. Uh, they occur within a year and a half of each other in 1921, in the case of Tulsa, 1923, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in the case of um, Rosewood. Um, and um, they both occur in the South. Uh, I, one more word about the time, uh, because I won't have time later to really get into it. And, and that is, this is a time of particular violence in the United States in the post-World War I era. 1919 uh, has been called the Red Summer. There was uh, racial violence in, in 25 cities in the United States, uh, Chicago being the most prominent. Uh, 1917, there was violence in places like East St. Louis, Illinois. 
uh, in uh, Florida. Rosewood was not the worst case. There were worse cases of black massacres and violence and lynchings uh, um, in, in the areas around uh, Rosewood. Um, and um, one of the factors for this is that uh, black soldiers had come back with a new attitude about how they wanted to be treated in the United States. Uh, and so we see some resistance that we hadn't seen in early earlier massacres of Blacks, uh, like Wilmington. Uh, Dr. Henry, Ralph. can I interrupt you for just yeah. one second? People are asking in the chat about Rosewood. I don't know if everyone knows that case. If you could just very briefly speak to that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to give you the triggering incident in both cases. Great. Uh, I'm going to read a paragraph, and that's, <laughs> that's the best I can do. Um, uh, maybe I should have done that first, but let me finish this line and then uh, give you the sort of the particulars. Uh, the place, um, there was resistance. Uh, both were prosperous communities, Tulsa especially. Uh, the press played a very negative role in uh, the white press in, in, in the cases of uh, Rosewood and Tulsa, particularly Tulsa. Um, there was a failure of legal redress. There were at least 100 lawsuits in, in the case of Tulsa. There were lawsuits also in Rosewood. Uh, and there's an erasure from history. Um, that uh, I wanted to uh, talk about. Let me uh, read you a quote from my favorite author first in regard to the erasure from history, and then I'll briefly talk about the cases. Um, this is from James Baldwin. People who imagine that history flatters them, in, in parentheses, as it does indeed since they wrote it, in parentheses, are impaled on their history like a butterfly on a pin and become incapable of seeing or changing themselves or the world. This is the place in which it seems to me most white Americans find themselves impaled. They are dimly or vividly aware that history, that the history they have fed themselves is mainly a lie, but they do not know how to release themselves from it. And they suffer enormously from the resulting personal incoherence. Now, that leads me into a discussion of Rosewood and Tulsa because they were very prominent cases in the news. They were in the New York Times. Uh, the black press wrote about them as well as the white press. Um, and no one in my generation knew anything about them, right? Uh, it had simply been erased uh, from history. It's really striking in the case of Tulsa that one of America's most prominent historians, Daniel Borstein, who was also the Librarian of Congress at one point, was raised in Tulsa and never wrote a word about Tulsa. John Hope Franklin was raised around Tulsa, uh, the dean of, of uh, black historians, and only very late in his career uh, discussed uh, Tulsa at, at all. So there's this kind of erasure of history uh, that Baldwin is, is hinting at. Let me just read a paragraph about each case uh, and then uh, talk about the outcomes. Um, the, um, this is uh, Rosewood. The trouble started in Sumner, which is a city close to Rosewood, in the early morning of New Year's Day, 1922, when Fanny Taylor stumbled out of her house bleeding and battered. As a crowd of neighbors gathered around her, the weeping and hysterical white housewife claimed that a quote-unquote nigger had attacked her. By the time Fanny's husband, James, arrived back home from his job of oiling machinery at the sawmill, 
County Sheriff Rob Walker was already there and a posse was forming. Sheriff Walker believed the likely culprit was a black convict, Jesse Hunter, who had escaped from a county road gang the day before. And then the situation evolves from there. The posse goes out. Uh, any black they stop, they question about where this, this escaped convict is. Uh, they shoot blacks along the way. They torture people to try to get information. Uh, they go to the house of uh, uh, Sylvester Carrier, uh, 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 Army war veteran. Uh, they try to break in. He shoots back out. Uh, word spreads and people start coming in from outside that uh, there's a race riot going on uh, and it simply uh, spins out of control from there. And I have to stop there as I will keep going in. Uh, but you get a general flavor of that because you have a kind of similar thing in Tulsa. On May 30th, 1921, Dick Rowland, a, a boot black, took the elevator to the colored restroom in the office building near the shine parlor where he worked. He had to go to a colored restroom. It was in this building. As he got on the elevator, he apparently tripped and grabbed the arm of a 17-year-old Sarah Page, the white elevator operator, to balance himself. Page screamed, and as Roland hurried away, a clothing store clerk spotted him. The clerk called the police and claimed that Roland had attempted to rape Page, although there is no record of what Page said uh, to the police. The police come and they arrest uh, Roland at his adopted mother's home uh, and the Tulsa Tribune. The major paper runs a uh, um, front page story that afternoon entitled Negro, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. Uh, and then they also, some residents recall an editorial entitled To Lynch a Negro Tonight. Um, and so after the word of the lynching, came out through the newspaper. It spread like wildfire. Uh, black uh, citizens in Tulsa, including veterans, were concerned that Roland would be lynched. So they armed themselves and they went down the jail and they offered to the sheriff to help protect Roland from any mobs that might come. Uh, the sheriff said he didn't need them. Um, and they leave, uh, and then whites sort of descend on, on the jail, and uh, uh, blacks come back to the jail and offer their assistance again. It's refused, and they're leaving. Uh, a white tries to disarm a black and gets shot, and all hell breaks loose. Um, um, a very significant factor in this is that the sheriff in uh, Tulsa deputizes 500 whites to serve as his sort of posse, uh, and um, they go into uh, the black community. Um, blacks escaping are put in internment camps, four to 6,000. They're held there for three days. Uh, while they're in their camps, their homes are uh, uh, looted and, and burned. Uh, and the claims of death range from 39 official to over 300 including aerial bombs. And this is in the early 1920s. So these are some of the first aerial bombs that people fly over and uh, throw uh, explosives out of. Okay. I'm not doing well. Uh, so I'm not going to elaborate on, on 
the, the details on, on uh, this other than to say, Rosewood claim for reparations was successful. Tulsa's was, was, was not. What are some of the factors? Uh, there was no sophisticated lobby in the case of Tulsa. There was in the case of Rosewood in that they were successful in getting uh, a white uh, lawyer who was a, a lobbyist uh, who uh, agreed to take on the Rosewood case and uh, was skillful in taking it through the state legislature. Uh, and there was a dispute mechanism to handle a, a claim like this in the case of the Florida legislature. This was not the only time that people had complaints against the state. And the state had a mechanism with a kind of ombudsperson. He was called a special master that would handle these cases. And so it came through that quote unquote neutral sort of mechanism. Second, there was no organized black caucus in the Oklahoma legislature as there was in the Florida legislature. And most importantly, there was no uh, Hispanic caucus in the Oklahoma legislature. There was in the Florida legislature. And the claimants in Florida were able to, to frame their argument as the case of being dis your your land being dispossessed from you and taken away from you unlawfully and this appealed to Cuban Americans who had had their land confiscated by Fidel Castro and the Cuban government and even though most of them were conservative republicans they supported the reparations claim of Rosewood and that was a key in getting through the state legislature the Rosewood survivors were not as closely united as, I mean, the Tulsa survivors, which was a larger group, was not as closely united as the Rosewood survivors. Uh, and because there were more survivors in Rosewood in, the, uh, in Tulsa and the dollar figure was considerably larger, uh, there was more white opposition to reparations in, in, in Tulsa. Therefore, um, uh, the best that they got out of the Tulsa, both of these had study commissions um, there were financial reparations in Rosewood. Uh, the survivors in, in, in Tulsa got medals, no financial compensation. Okay. Um, shifting public opinion. Um, the... Um, the ground has shifted some since... Um, this last period, during this last period, we had uh, a number of actions going up until uh, from, from the 80s and in the 90s. Rosewood was decided in the early 90s, 1994. I could point to a number of other actions. Uh, but things slowed down uh, after the Durban conference in 2001, the international, the UN's uh, conference on, on, on race. Um, where reparations was a central issue. Uh, that conference occurred uh, one week before 9-11. And after 9-11, many, many issues were off the agenda and terrorism uh, became the issue. Um, and so uh, we, 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 we uh, see kind of a, a, a less reparations activity uh, up until uh, 2012, we begin to see a shift in public opinion uh, in, in the United States. Uh, and there are lots of polls I could cite. I'm just giving you sort of a, 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 a sample of that. But, uh, you know, the Pew Research Group 
of polls if you're interested in looking at, at the Pew polls. Uh, a lot of them deal with race. Uh, the American National Election Surveys, for those of you who are all more social science oriented, uh, has asked questions about race, racism, racial relations. And if you read the New York Times, you know that Thomas Edsel often uh, quotes a lot of recent research on, on race in the columns that he does. Um, but you see this shift uh, in public opinion, uh, and, and just to cite uh, a few things, the Kaiser CNN poll, a recent Kaiser CNN poll um, uh, a few years ago, found that racial tensions were worse today than they were 20 years ago. Um, um, uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration, for example, in 2008, things were pretty hopeful. Uh, after the formations of the Tea Party uh, by 2012, uh, that optimism had really declined and, and race relations were seen as becoming very polarized. Um, Gallup reported in the last year or two a 20% rise in liberalism among white Democrats. Uh, you would see that reflected, for example, in the candidacy of someone like Bernie Sanders. Um, and um, respondents in uh, another poll favored cash, favoring cash reparations to uh, descendants of slave, slaves rose from 14% to 29%. Now, that seems pretty, pretty low, but it was significantly lower before that includes African-Americans who uh, a, a vast majority of favor. So that raises it some. Um, but uh, the basic point is that this shift in public opinion to the left then has prepared more favorable ground for reparations claims. And we see that reflected in some recent successes in reparations. Uh, and I've just pulled these out of newspapers over the last couple of years. Um, including some just in the last month or two. Um, very significant case because it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement and others is that the Chicago City Council agreed to pay reparations to victims of police torture in a particular precinct in Chicago. Now, this was a rather famous case started in 2015 that actually made it to the UN and was discussed uh, at the UN. Um, we have uh, North Carolina within the last year or so agreeing to pay reparations to victims of forced sterilization. And there were about 7,000 of them in a period from, I think, the 1920s to the 1950s in North Carolina. Incidentally, there's a large number of victims of forced sterilizations in California uh, as well. Um, but the North Carolina case highlights the fact that we've had apologies from six state governments for um, slavery, state legislatures uh, 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 apologizing. Um, and we had uh, the House and the Senate issue apologies, I think, in 2009. Now, this is significant because Tony Hall, a congressman from Dayton in the 1990s, introduced a, a resolution for an apology to sla for slavery and received more hate mail, he said, than any other piece of legislation he'd ever been associated with. So this is a, 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 a turnaround in public opinion. Uh, universities, this is just, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to do a quick time check. Um, we've got just about yeah. 15 minutes left, and I want to make sure we got to some okay. of the questions. Give me two minutes, and then I'm done. 
uh, Oxford and Glasgow universities have paid uh, reparations to um, people in the Caribbean uh, for um, their role in the slave trade and offered scholarships and research money on reparations, um, uh, as have a number, as, as Dr. Bass has men mentioned, of American universities. Uh, Berkeley's hands are not clean on this, if you want to talk a little bit about that later. Uh, Dutch and French governments, after study commissions, have agreed to repatriate stolen art back to Africa. Um, I mentioned that, and I mentioned the National African American History and Culture Museum, because these I see as forms of reparations. It's not all about cash payments. It's about education. Uh, it's about uh, restoring uh, 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 sort of history and capturing history as in the American History and Culture Museum. Uh, it's about repatriation of art. Uh, there were congressional hearings finally after 30 years uh, in the summer of 2019 on H.R. 40, the original bill that Conyers had submitted. Uh, and we see, we saw in the last several months, uh, presidential candidate support for reparations. From Marianne Williams saying, I'll pay the money now, <laughs> to Joe Biden saying, oh, well, I think this is something that, that we could could study. And so the con consequence of that is, uh, and I won't talk about it, and you've, you've probably seen it, uh, is uh, the California Commission bill that's uh, just been signed uh, by the governor. Uh, and the final thing is a, um, a list for further reading. I hope I, I, I got you curious enough uh, that you'll want to look at uh, something in more depth. And each of these works looks at different aspects of reparations, so they're not, not totally repetitive. So let me stop there and, and try to answer some questions. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's such a rich history that I don't think everyone was aware of this conversation has been going on for a long time. Um, we got several questions in the chat related to what should or would at reparations look like? So you, you, and you touched on that a little bit. So part could be cash payments, um, other questions about social welfare programs. Um, but I really like this question of um, what would it uh, look like for black, or what would enable black Americans to feel acknowledged, redressed and with closure? Yeah, well, you know, it's talked about as a, a process, and, and the first is apology or acknowledgement that a harm has been done. It, it's always interesting to me that a term that means that uh, that, that that means redress, that that means reconciliation, reparations, uh, an attempt to heal, has been such a divisive issue. There is no public policy issue that has separated blacks and whites more in terms of opinion. Uh, uh, than reparations. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, candidates for office have avoided that like the plague up until very recently, uh, including Barack Obama. So, um, uh, so, so we have acknowledgement. And then once you have some acknowledgement that harm has been done, and this is why study commissions are so important, because we seem to be disagreeing so much today on what the facts are, that we need to have a set of facts that everybody agrees that this is what happened, uh, that once we reach that, acknowledge that, then we can have some form of redress. 
And then uh, there has to be some closure on, on both sides. Both sides have to be sort of a part of this. Uh, it can't be forced uh, on something. And in terms, you know, of kind of the trope is uh, I want my check kind of thing. And why should Tiger Woods get a check and, and all, of, all of that? Most reparations uh, discussions I see want to uh, affect the, the, the wealth gap in the United States, which ranges from uh, the, the California bill quotes a figure of blacks have one sixteenth the wealth of whites. Uh, I've seen other figures that say one tenth the wealth, but uh, a sort of one-time cash payment of a few thousand dollars really doesn't close that wealth gap at all. That doesn't help you buy a home, for example. Um, one of the things I didn't talk about when I talked about 40 acres and a mule was at the same time they're talking about 40 acres and a mule, the Homestead Act passes in 1866, and there's several Homestead Acts. Uh, the Homestead Acts give about, I think it's 240 some million acres to whites to settle free and free land, right? If you settle on it and develop it. Uh, uh, to white, white Americans, blacks were largely excluded from that. I think 1.6 million whites benefit from this, 4,000 blacks got land. But the remarkable figure is about a quarter of the American population today uh, can trace their ancestry back to somebody who got some land through the Homestead Act. Well, that has helped create the wealth gap that gives whites more wealth than blacks. We were also denied GI loan mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. So we see people talking about then some sort of fund that would be used to help Blacks gain assets to close this wealth gap. And uh, I'm, I could talk further on that, but there are other <laughs> questions. Yeah, it's another question that's related to um, Isabel Wilkerson's latest book on caste, which I think is really important. Yeah. Um, and I'll just share one of the questions I've often wondered is, you know, if, if in some possible world reparations did happen, is that sort of a way of brushing off the question of the systemic challenges uh, that Black Americans have faced and, and have faced from slavery on in multiple ways? And so the question is, how what can represent, reparations do to address this inequity and change the system? Yeah, well, I think that's why people have talked about sort of having assets, which are intergenerational wealth that you can pass along. Uh, you know, we, we see upward mobility in the white community, but we see downward mobility in, in the black community. Uh, so, you know, when you say, well, if I give you a $5,000 check, I think this was something on the Colbert show once or something. If I give you a $5,000 check, actually, it was, I think Charles Krautheimer said at one point, uh, a few years ago, the, the, the conservative, late conservative columnist, let's just write a check for $5,000 to give it to people. And I don't want to hear any more complaints from you. Mm -hmm. That sort of doesn't make up for intergenerational wealth. Um, and so we can see something like in, in the bail bond system, which is on the ballots in California today. You know, poor people can't get out of jail, stay in jail, uh, can't pay bail bonds. Those with assets get out. Their families have homes they can put up for bail, whatever. Uh, so if you're able to close that wealth gap, it gives you the resources to survive pandemics, 
when you're not employed or you're not getting your paycheck, right? Uh, uh, kids can come home who can't, can't afford their apartments, can come home and stay with parents who are in a house that has their mortgage paid, et cetera. So in terms of the long-term problems or the other problems, I think sort of reparations advocates see having assets, having wealth gives you the power to survive unemployment, the power to deal with the police, the power to contribute to political candidates, uh, so that you can get politicians that respect you, uh, et, et cetera. So I, you know, I don't think anybody, I, I, I don't think anybody believes there's a silver bullet. But if there's one thing that would give you, empower you in some way, it would be uh, to have the wealth to afford college tuition, right? To cover unexpected health dilemmas those kinds of things that those with assets can survive and those without are all of a sudden they're living from paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. That paycheck stops and they're on the street. They're homeless. And we see that in a disproportionate number of blacks in the homeless population. Right. And one of the things you've noted is, you know, just how poorly the legal system is equipped to, um, collective redress, and particularly when we're talking about historical harms, right? So you're not actually um, giving redress to the the person who was harmed, which means that with regards to national reparations, um, we're beholden to a political context. Right now, as everyone knows, we're extremely polarized and very combative. Um, Do you think national reparations is a pathway? What guidance would you give for groups who are working in that space? And one of the questions was, who do you know is working at the national level on reparations? Well, I mean, we, we can talk both about elected officials and, and non-elected officials. And of course, the elected officials, most of the efforts behind uh, H.R. 40 and uh, most of the presidential candidates, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, those in the Senate, had signed on as co-sponsors of, of that legislation. And so uh, you know, the problem will become uh, uh, the Senate, of course, which is in not in Democratic hands. And so if you want H.R. 40 passed, uh, you're going to have to have a Senate that will vote on it uh, and, and then a president who will, who will sign it. So that's, what's that, that's sort of the name of the game at the electoral level. Although, you know, a question I got, uh, when we passed it in California was somebody said, well, isn't it kind of superfluous to do this in California because we're doing it at the national level? Yeah, but we've been doing it at the national level for 30 years. And California legislature is more liberal than the state legislature at this point because we don't have a, a Senate uh, like uh, uh, we do in Washington. And so maybe California can be a model for how this can, can be done. Uh, so let's not put all our eggs in, in one basket. And so we've got action both at, at, at this level, uh, the California level, and at the national level electorally. And then there are a number of groups uh, of activists who have pushed reparations for years through the UN. Uh, uh, probably the most notable has been uh, NCOBRA, the National Coalition, uh, but, uh, but, but there are others, and there are then these local actions like Chicago. And so uh, there are actions around universities. So if you're a college student 
look at your university's history, look how it's benefited or not. Uh, in the case of Berkeley, look at LeCant Hall and who it's named after, uh, for example, uh, if you want to get involved in, in sort of reparations that may or may not involve cash compensation. But I consider the whole sort of removing Confederate statues a part of, let's look at the real history uh, here and why these statues are here and what they represent and what the absence of statues for Black women or Black men represent. Absolutely. We got a couple of questions about um, the truth and reconciliation process, as we know, the most famous one being in South Africa, but there's been local ones here in the U.S. and others and around the world. Um, what do you think is the strengths and weaknesses of that approach? Would that be something helpful for us in this country? Yeah, I think that's a, a beginning point. I, 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 you know, we found in the case of the Japanese-American reparations, for example, um, the internment uh, of Japanese Americans had not been talked about by the generation, by the parents. Many had been very silent about this and their kids and grandkids knew very little about it. Uh, when they had hearings on this, uh, uh, it kind of opened up this pent up emotion and these feelings. These, these, the, 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 many of the people that had been um, put in these camps had felt ashamed about it. And that was why they didn't talk about it. And so there was a kind of catharsis that was a result of this process of, uh, of, of sort of uh, talking about this history. And I think this, this is, uh, you know, when we talk about the buildup of microaggressions and that kind of thing, it would be a cathartic thing for people to talk about sort of their experiences in this mm -hmm. country on sort of both sides uh, uh, of the issue. Uh, and I, I think that's a kind of necessary conversation to get to the point where you're talking about any kind of, of redress, because as long as we're arguing different histories and not sort of coming together as a community and seeing this as part of our, our whole history, then we're not going to reach a point where we can actually have any meaningful redress. Yeah, absolutely. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. I want to give you an opportunity. Any if you had one thing that you wanted people to, to gather from our time together today, really thinking about um, the possibilities of reparations in the U.S., what would you share? Well, you know, all, all history is kind of local. And my, my, my notion would be not to sit around and wait for Congress to do it. Or you can write to your congressperson or your state legislator, um, but look around in your community to see uh, you know, what are people studying in, in terms of public school books? If we look at textbooks in places like Texas, for example, you wouldn't recognize Tulsa or Rosewood. If they were there at all, it would be a totally different perspective. It was like if you read the white newspapers after Tulsa and the black newspapers, it was like people were in two different universes. Mm. You know, these, these white women were attacked by these vicious black men and they were rightly defended by these posses. And yes, some people were lynched, but it was justice that was meted out. And if you read the black version of the, this, the, these accounts, uh, they're totally different. And so, uh, you know, we have to we, we, we have to sort of look at what our students are being taught uh, in their schools and what's happening locally in terms of police brutality or homelessness or segregation in terms of housing, who's living next to you. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It's so appreciative of Professor Henry um, sharing his time with us today. Um, and thank you for joining us for this latest offering in the America's Unfinished Work uh, series with uh, Ollie. Please check the website for any upcoming events. Um, and again, thanks for joining us and have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.